Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the good news, the gospel, according to John chapter 5, uh, verses 1 to 14. We're going to read this story together uh, to inform another story that we're going to look at tonight. Let's share in God's good word together. Jesus went up to Jerusalem where there is a pool which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Stand up, take your mat, and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Now that day was a Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your mat. Later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. In the first hundred years or so, from the time Jesus was born, the new followers of Jesus really lived out a resurrection faith. They didn't know much more than Jesus, the Messiah, had come, but they didn't have any written text really to know what to do. Certainly the Gentiles didn't. The Jews had the Old Testament, but many of those folks weren't even Uh, had access to that. And so you had all these new followers of Jesus and really all they had were sort of collections of sayings that had been handed down from uh, eyewitness account to eyewitness account. And so they had a number of things that Jesus said not to do. We're looking at those things over uh, four weeks. So last week we looked at fear not. Will you say that with me? Fear not. Um, Other things we're going to look at in in subsequent weeks uh, are worry not. Say that with me. Worry not. And we're going to end with judge not. Say that with me. Judge not. And so you think about if you were lived a life where you never had a fear, you never had a worry, and you weren't judging, that'd be a pretty good life, wouldn't it? Just those very simple things. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take them out. You see that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not yet written in the early days following Jesus. Uh, Matthew, we learned last week, was written around 60 to 65. Uh, John was written after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, probably not until... Um, Really, really late first century or early, early second century, around 100, uh, was John was written. And so you had all this time where followers of Jesus had to try to figure it out. What does it mean by just going on these few things like fear not, worry not, uh, doubt not, Jesus says in another place, judge not. And today uh, we're going to look at something we all are familiar with, um, sin not. So we looked at the story that we read, and in ways that the Jews understood, in ways that we don't fully today, is that what you do with your mind, what you do with your body, affects your soul. It just do, does, that's a truth. Now, oftentimes we'll get kind of caught up in that, uh, because sometimes uh, there's exceptions to that. Uh, for example, when Jesus heals a blind man, uh, and they said, well, is that because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus says, no, 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 neither one of those in this case. Uh, you're going to see him healed, and he's healed. And so sometimes it's not because of our sin, but sometimes it is because it's all connected. Um, Many of you all know um, that if you're not feeling well, um, oftentimes you can kind of be in a bad mood. Anybody been in chronic pain? Uh, You know how that affects you. It's very, very difficult to have sort of a sunny disposition if you're in pain all day long. These things are connected, and people in Jesus' day um, had it so connected that they almost never separated it. 
Uh, in our culture today, we often keep it separated um, and, and oftentimes don't have it connect. And so we're going to look at this idea today and what Jesus was doing and, and what Jesus has to say um, about his love for all of his children. So I share that first story to say that Jesus is concerned about a man and he heals him and he helps him and that's what a savior does. Sozo in the Greek salvation, the word for salvation is sozo, also means healing and wholeness. Those go together uh, when Jesus talks about it. So we look at that story to inform this story. It's a story that you may have heard before, but I hope that you'll hear it again with new ears. You'll see it again with new eyes tonight because uh, as one of our favorite um, movies at our house, uh, we like to say this, it doesn't mean what you think it means. It It may just not mean what you think it means. So we'll get started with another story that happens just a few chapters later in John, uh, in John 8, uh, 10. The story goes like this. Early in the morning, he, meaning Jesus, came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he began to teach them. Now, this is easily a throwaway verse, but it's really important. It sets the context for everything else that's going to happen in the story. This is early, early in the morning, perhaps even before sunrise. Jesus is coming up to the temple. The temple mount is huge. It's, it's more than 30 acres large. It would be, uh, if you could imagine, all the way from Pennsylvania all the way to the school. All of that is lifted up. Uh, you'll see here uh, what, where the temple used to be, where the Dome of the Rock is. That's not the whole temple mount. That's just a part of it. So you expand on that. You'll see a, a mosque. Uh, On the south end, you'll see stairs that will go into the mosque. None of that was there in Jesus' day except for the Temple Mount, the the huge piece that extends really to the whole of that picture, the whole of that photo. That's the Temple Mount. And so that was there. So Jesus comes early to this place, early, early in the morning to teach. And, And so people are going to start coming. Chantel and I had the great privilege of being there. This is the south wall down there. And you'll see this huge wall. Now, Jesus has come from the Mount of Olives over here, and he's come in, and and you can see the huge, just enormous changes in elevation. By the way, those are buses, right? Those are huge buses. I mean, the the enormity of this is hard to uh, describe. And so you, you could be down in the lower part of the city, and you would look up and look up, and you would just come to the base of where the wall was, and then it would go on up, and then this is not really very high. That's the mosque. Uh, there that that has been built since the time of Jesus. And so um, even people today uh, still come to the Temple Mount. This is a Jewish man. They were having a bar mitzvah while we were there. We were coming up from the Western Wall, and this family was coming down. People come by the thousands every day to the Temple Mount, Jews, Christians, Muslims. It's a high and holy, sacred place, uh, uh, just a sacred, holy uh, mountain that's been built up as a mountain. It's, It's ginormous. And so that happens today. So here we are um, at sort of one edge uh, of the Temple Mount. And you can see uh, the Dome of the Rock where the temple uh, most likely would have been, you know, blocks and blocks away. But it's all up on the Temple Mount, all in the same spot. Uh, And so if you were to look from the Temple Mount, uh, from the Dome of the Rock back towards the mosque, you can see that there's room for thousands of people. It's this huge mall uh, with hand-laid stone um, over centuries, really millennia, uh, being placed there. You can see this was just our group uh, that we were with. And so you can see there's plenty of room for for everyone. This is a very, very large built-up area, uh, larger than our campus here, um, including everything uh, that we build on here. Okay? And so here is a replica of what it might have looked like in Jesus' day. And so here is the Holy of Holies. Uh, This is where God 
uh, resided. This is where the Ten Commandments would be held. The Ark of the Covenant. Uh, here would be the, the women's uh, quarters of the, uh, the court. Outside here, this enormous place that we've been showing you would be the court of the Gentiles or out here. This is the money changers here. And if you were a Jew, every year, this is the south wall, you would come from lower parts of the city. Um, and this is the highest point. This was a mountain. Herod built it all the way up. You would come from anywhere around uh, by the tens of thousands, and you would come up these stairs, and you wouldn't be carrying a little scroll. You would be carrying a goat or a bull or pigeons or whatever to make a sacrifice. You would have to change your currency here, then come in, and then you would come through the women's court into the men's court, into the priest's court, into the holy. You would never get to go to the holy of holies, but that's where your sacrifice would be made. By the thousands, you would come in. This was your path of atonement, the at-one-ment with God. This made you right with God. This was your only chance. You would do this to be made right with God. Without doing this, you could not be made right with God, and it was huge. So this is um, a representation. You can see those people in the background. It, they look tiny. If we zoom in, you can kind of see them. This is really, it's hard for me to describe how big this is. Uh, and to think that these were stones were laid thousands and thousands of years ago by people, this huge mall uh, that would have been felt by the thousands. So Jesus comes here, right, in the path of atonement, the pathway to God, and he comes early in the morning to the temple. This was a place where people came to be forgiven, to be at one with God. It was the epicenter of Jewish life, the epicenter of holiness. So Jesus sits down, uh, maybe under one of those big trees, um, and uh, there's some olive trees that are over in the Garden of Gethsemane that are 2,000 years old. I mean, it, it's really amazing. You can go there and see that. So Jesus sits down in this huge mall. And we don't know the number of the crowd. It may have been a few hundred. It may have been a few thousand. All we know is Jesus is sitting in, in the Temple Mount early in the morning. Everybody's gathered around him. And look what happens next. The scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now, it is hard for me to overemphasize what a bad deal this is. It is super uncomfortable. It is laden with emotional weight. Jesus is sitting teaching his followers, a group of people, on the holiest place in the world. And these religious so-and-sos grab a woman caught in adultery. Now, I don't know when a good time to have adultery is uh, in Judaism, but it probably wasn't at six in the morning. So many scholars believe that they found this woman caught in the very act of adultery with, with someone else, of course, which they didn't seem to mind to bring him. And, and they drag her all the way from wherever they are in the city, probably the night before, they hold her and they're, they're creating a plan. They're like, oh, this is good. We're going to get Jesus on this. We're going to see what he does. Because we know he loves people and he cares for people. We're going to trap him. We, we've got a trap for him. So they take her, they drag her through the city. They pull her all the way up those stairs, all the way up, up to the Temple Mount. And Jesus is sitting teaching and he can see these Pharisees with this woman coming. And they pull her, drag. She may be kicking, maybe screaming, weeping. Oh no! I mean, this is the end of her life. This is a death penalty for her. Caught in the very act of committing adultery. It's not a rumor. It's not a maybe. It's not, well, perhaps. No, they caught her in the very act. They grabbed her. They held her. They're taking her in front of Jesus and the whole group of people. And they bring her to the center of the temple courts. There where Jesus is teaching. So they bring her. 
Now, I would remind you that this was not a small offense. If you look at the Ten Commandments, right, in Exodus 20, 13 and 14, uh, it goes like this. You shall not murder. And right underneath it, it says you shall not commit what? Adultery. Boom, boom. Right together. Both are death penalties. This, this was one of the top ten. Uh, you might say one of the top two. Uh, or, or top two or three. This was a huge, huge thing. I would also remind you that it was pretty hard to commit adultery in Jesus' day because they had polygamy. I mean, you could have 25 wives uh, and you could sleep with women who were single. The only ladies you couldn't sleep with were wives of other men. So it wasn't for lack of choice. It, it wasn't for lack of ability. It was an intentional act by a man with another man's wife. And she had been caught. And notice that the agenda here is not about the woman. And it's not about the welfare of the woman. It's about entrapping Jesus. And so the Pharisees were more interested in catching Jesus. That's your blank there. They were more interested in catching Jesus than the welfare of this woman. They didn't care about her. They didn't really care too much about what happened to her as long as they were able to put Jesus in his place and start to separate the people from Jesus. You see, in John 8, 5, they said this. They, they drag her, but notice they don't talk about her. They say, now in the law, right, because they're at the Holy of Holies. Now in the law, they say Moses. Now Moses was the top. There was nobody bigger than Moses. He was the one that freed them from Egypt. He was the guy. So Moses, right, who God handed the, the stone tablets to in, in their minds, God wrote with his finger the Ten Commandments, gave them to Moses, and handed us a stone and told us to stone such women. And then they say, now what do you say, Jesus? With a thousand people gathered around, perhaps. What do you say? And they wait. Because they think they've got him. Now, notice, and this happens all the time with religious folks. They don't actually say what the scripture says. They say what they want it to say. Because if you go back to the Levitical Code, what you find is this. If a man commits adultery, right? That's not what they're saying. The Levitical code is this. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Well, where's the guy? Isn't that convenient? They've just left him out of the deal. So now they're making God's law work for them the way they want it to, to get Jesus in trouble with the people he's trying to lead. That's always a temptation with religious folk. And Jesus will have none of it. You see, this woman now is in the same place that many of us are from time to time. She has been drugged away from her people and her place and her safety net. She has been put in front of other people for public shame. She is as uncomfortable as she has ever been. These are not her people. This is not her place. And for some of you here tonight uh, who don't really dig church or whatever, you're kind of feeling the same way. Like, oh, I know what that lady's feeling like. I feel it right now. Like, I'm really uncomfortable. This isn't... Um, you know, this isn't in my wheelhouse. And you see, um, she is now in the center of attention of the Gentile court. She's probably a Jewish woman. She's in the Gentile court being accused by folks that she may not even know. And she is desperate for a savior. And notice, though, what, what they do. Something that we already know at this point in John 8, 6. They said this to test him. That's your blank there. They're just testing Jesus. So that they might have some charge to bring against him. You see, it's a setup. They, they know 
that Jesus has been a lover of all people. He has been hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes and, and other people that other people have said are far from God. And Jesus has been reaching out to them, showing them what God's love is really like. You see, so they've set up this epic battle. It's Jesus versus Moses, right? That's what it is. It's Jesus versus Moses. And so Moses had the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's Jesus versus Moses. It's Jesus versus the temple, it's not just Moses. He's at the temple. He's by the Holy of Holies. He's sitting right there like, oh, this can't get any better. He's already there. He's going to have to fold. He's got the Holy of Holies right by him. He's already in the Gentile court. It's Jesus versus Moses. It's Jesus versus the temple. It's Jesus versus their Bible. You see, they, they, they were quoting the Old Testament. They, they knew this forwards and backwards, and they used it to their advantage. And so Jesus was in a hard spot. Because if they could get Jesus to go against Moses, if they could get Jesus to go against the temple, if they could get Jesus to go against the scripture as they understood it, then they had him. That's all they had to do. He was political toast. You see, that's what religious people often try to do. They try to, then and now, separate Jesus from people. Try to pull away his love and care and compassion and, and try to make it ugly. You see, that's not who Jesus is, and that's not what he does. It's really important what happens next. And all along, this woman is standing by. We're at point two. And, I, and before we get to how Jesus responds, uh, I wonder what's going through this lady's mind. Because if this plays out the way she thinks it's going to play out, she's going to be dead in about 15 minutes. And so I wonder if she wasn't the first person in the history of Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous to say this. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over sex and love addiction, that our lives had become unmanageable. I mean, it is unmanageable. What she's looking at right now is unmanageable. It had worked for her at some level in some way at some time. It's not working now. She's about to die. And look what happens. This is what Jesus does in this huge, huge temple mount he responds by bending down on the ground and he writes with his what his finger not a scroll not a pen not a stick his finger now you would be reminded that the jews understood god himself to have written that commandment about not committing adultery with his finger in the stone tablet and handing it to moses now it's jesus finger versus god's finger now he's writing on the stone ground. And no one for sure knows what that looks like, but it's really interesting what happens. Jesus writes in the ground with his finger. Now, some translations put sand, but having walked on that temple mount, I would tell you there's not really any sand there. It's stone. I wonder if miracle upon miracle, Jesus was actually like, hey, check this out, laser finger, boom, like just cutting it in the stone. People are like, what is that? Now look what happens. The religious folks, right? They are not happy with this. They want an answer. They've got him trapped. They want to blow him up. And so they kept on questioning him. They're like, hey, Jesus, come on. You know this is right. You got it. You got to kill her. You got to help us. Come on. You know this is the deal. We've got you now. And then Jesus straightens up. He makes himself big. And he looks at them. And they kept on questioning him. And then he says this. Anyone among you who is without sin, 
be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, I would remind you that as Jesus stands up in the courtyard of the Gentiles, what's behind him? What are they looking at? They are looking at the Holy of Holies. Jesus is here in the court of Gentiles. He hasn't yet made it to the court of women. And the Holy of Holies is right there. Now, each one of these men would have made this trip every year of their life since they were 12. They had brought rams and bulls and pigeons and goats and sheep and, and brought them up to make the sacrifice so they could be at one with God. They knew the presence and power of God. This was the place where they tied a rope around the priest's leg because if the priest wasn't holy enough, he didn't come out. This was a place of awe and trembling. And Jesus stands up between them and the temple, the Holy of Holies. And he says, okay, which one of you, having made this trip many times, without sin, go ahead? Because you know what's behind me. Something very interesting happens. They start to reflect on their life. And they start to leave. They start to go away. And then the scripture says this, for those who were still, you know, sort of like, well, I'm not sure, I still think I want to kill her. I still want to commit murder, right? One of the top ten as well. So look what Jesus does. He once again bends down, and he writes on the ground in the stones there. Now what our Bibles no longer say, but the ancient scriptures said, and the ancient authorities say, is that he bent down, and you know what he wrote on the ground? Their sin. (laughs) Each and every one of them. Pharisee Bob, lust. Pharisee Peter, stealing. Pharisee Steve, adultery. 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 You see, Jesus knows the heart and the history of every person on the planet, yours and mine. And he loves us all. He's for all of our good. Jesus writes down the sins of each of them. And you know what I've learned over 47 years of life? And from this story, it's a good reminder that it is wise, it is wisdom not to push Jesus. If you've got an agenda and Jesus isn't rolling with you, you better stop. Because it's not going to end well. But we do that all the time with Jesus, don't we? We're like, hey Jesus, I need this job. Hey Jesus, I need that thing. Hey Jesus, I need this house. Hey Jesus, I need to get in that neighborhood. Hey Jesus. And if he's not moving, if he's still writing on the ground, you might want to pay attention to what he's writing. Because he's Lord of all. Lord of all of it. And, and so we don't misunderstand. This story, it's not about the girl's sin. And this story is not about the Pharisees' religious sin. It's about much more than that. It's way bigger than all of that. Because Jesus alone is bigger than Moses. And he's claiming it. So Jesus is bigger than the temple. Jesus is bigger than the Bible itself. He is God himself, finger to finger with God, rewriting history, accepting and loving those who had formerly been on the outside. No longer. So he finishes up his doodles in the stone. And he stands up. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the oldest, then the youngest. Maybe the older ones had more sins. Their list was longer. They were like, we better get out of here. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Can you imagine that huge scene? And it's just the woman and Jesus now. Just the two of them. Just the two of them. 
And it doesn't say that she's relieved. It doesn't say that she's afraid. It doesn't say that she's comforted. I think she might be a little confused because she thought she was over. Ended. Look what Jesus says to her. He looks at her and he says, woman, maybe smiling. Where are they? Where'd they go? They were here just a minute ago. I was doodling. I looked up and, well, I'll be. They're gone. And then he says this. Woman, where are they? Has no one, say it with me, condemned you? Has no one condemned you? Is no one making you pay the price for what we all know has happened? Notice this doesn't say she's not guilty. She's guilty. She knows it. He knows it. Everybody knows it. Caught in the act. It's not about guilt. She's guilty. It's about condemnation. Has no one condemned you? Jesus says. And then he says this. Neither do I. Neither do I. God himself. Neither do I condemn you. Now, you might think that that is just shocking. Like, what do you mean God doesn't condemn her? It's it's in the Ten Commandments. She did it. Why isn't she condemned? Because, friends, five chapters earlier, we know this. John 3, 17 is very clear about this. Indeed, God did not send the Son, Jesus, into the world to condemn the world. No, that's not why he came. But in order that the world might be what? Saved, healed, whole through him. God's not in the guilt business. He's about the saving business. He's about renewal about healing, about wholeness, about life. And and Jesus is saying, yes, I know the Ten Commandments, of course. Me and my dad wrote it. I got it. I know it. But I'm not enforcing it on her. I'm saving her. I'm lifting her up. I love her. I love all my kids, and I love you. I love all my kids, all of them. Indeed, he didn't come to condemn the world. No, to save the world. To say that's the good news of Easter, that he's defeated even death. So no matter what you've done, even if it's in the big ten or the top two or whatever it is in your mind, God is reaching out to love, save, redeem you tonight, this very moment. Did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. And because that's true, look what he says to her. It's really important that you get that first part right. She says, no one, sir. No. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. I'm not going to make you pay for what you've done, no. Go your way, and from now on, what? Do not sin again. So week two is sin not. But friends, you have to hear it in the context in which Jesus says it. He has literally put his life in front of the stones, playing the role of Savior. I'm here. I'm not going to let them stone you. Those of you who you know are without sin, throw the first stone. Now, this is the irony. There's only one person in the crowd without a stone. And that's the one person that had no sin. Everybody who had sin had stones. And Jesus knew it. They walk away. So he says, don't sin again. And his tone is all about compassion. It's about love. And those of you who have been parents, certainly parents of teenagers or college-age kids or older, you get this. There are things that your kids are doing, and you're like, don't do that again. That was really dumb. You know, don't, don't get in a car uh, on a date with somebody you've never met before and go to some place that, that you don't know where that is. That's dumb. Don't do that. I love you. I'm not trying to ruin your good time. I'm trying to save your life. That's not smart, right? Don't, don't go into this risky behavior over here. Don't drink until you can't remember anymore. Don't use drugs that you don't know what are. Don't take pills from friends that you don't have a prescription for. Don't do these things. It's not about morality. It's about saving your stinking life. 
that you might have real life. That I really love you. I really care about you. You're breaking my heart, Jesus says. Good morals are supposed to bring good life. So we've got to get out of the judgment business and into the life-saving business because that's what Jesus came to do. It's really important we get this right, friends. Jesus says sin not, not because he's beating on us, because he loves us. You know, if your kid goes 120 on a two-lane highway with curves in it, that's not a good idea. Even if they live to tell you about it one time. Even if you used to do it yourself. Sin not. Live long. Because here's, here's the lesson, friends. Every sin, everything that the Spirit of God tells us not to do, it's because it comes pre-packed with the penalty. That's just, that's just the truth about sin. And small sins early have little small problems. You know, you drink a little bit too much wine tonight because the sermon's bugging you, you'll have a little headache in the morning. Not that bad of a deal. Till the next time you have a problem, then, you know, it's a little more of this, a little more of that grain alcohol, and then, you know, you're texting your exes. You're Facebooking and, and saying all kinds of crazy stuff. Your husband or your wife goes, did you see what you posted on Facebook last night at 2 in the morning? I did. I mean, it's a problem. And it gets worse. And every time you sin, something dies. Something. It may not be visible. It might be a part of your relationship. It might be your relationship with your child. It might be your child itself. It might be your marriage. It might be a relationship with your parents. It might be a part of your soul. But every time we choose to hurt ourselves or hurt someone else, something dies. Something dies. You see, the consequence of sin is the reason Jesus urges her to leave her life of sin. He's urging her because he loves her. Because of the consequence of sin. He's saying, look, sister, you were this close to being ended this afternoon or this morning. So don't do that again. I might not be here next time. We don't know whether she got it or not. There's questions left with us, isn't it? The consequence of sin is the reason Jesus urges her to leave her life of sin. Let's change the pronouns because it's true today, isn't it? The consequence of sin is the reason... Jesus urges you, urges me, all of us, I'm in this boat with you, to leave your life of sin. Say that with me. The consequence of sin is the reason Jesus urges you to leave your life of sin. Whatever that is. I don't need to know it. Your neighbor probably doesn't need to know it, but you need to know it. You know there's places in your life that are just riddled with self-hatred, self-destruction. Things that you know aren't God's best for you. And, and we have to understand that this is about God's heart. You see, the temple model was really cold. Uh, and it worked for some people, and there's still some churches around that try to make it work today. And the temple model goes like this. When you sin, you break God's law, and you'll pay for it. That's how a lot of our judicial system still works, by the way. And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. The temple model is this. When you sin, you break God's what? God's law. But look at Jesus' model makes all the difference in the world when you sin with jesus you break god's what it's heart because he loves you it's very different in the temple model you sin you break god's law and there's penalties to be paid when you sin with jesus you break god's heart and the penalty is already paid at the cross because he loves you 
And wouldn't it be foolish to pay the penalty twice? Or three times, or 40 times, or 50 times, or 100 times that we would beat on ourselves when God's already taken it. He's already had a broken heart for you. He's already given his whole life for you and for me. There's no reason for us to continue to hurt ourselves or others. We don't have to. Because we've already been given the power to live differently because of Christ and his spirit. And in case we forget, uh, these sermons are adapted um, from Andy Stanley uh, over at North Point in Atlanta. Uh, I think he's a really great teacher, and so I wanted to share some of these highlights with you. And he said this, it has stuck with me, I think he's exactly right. He says, when someone is willing to die for you, you never have to wonder where you stand with him. I mean, if you still don't know if Jesus loves you, I mean, are you kidding me? He died for you. Anybody who's willing to die for you, they're on your side. They're for you. They love you. They'll do anything for you. If they'll die for you, they're for you. You don't have to worry about that ever again. You can have the assurance of the Holy Spirit, the assurance that God is for you. If you know that Jesus died for you, he's for you. He's rooting for you. He wants what's good for you. You don't have to ever worry about that ever again. You see, God wants to protect you from pain and hurt. Not because the Bible says so, but because God himself has already died for you. So your action step tonight is this. Sin not. Because it's good for you. It'll help bring life that really is life. You see, God never wants us to hurt ourselves or others. Now, that's, don't, don't mishear me. Reggie McNeil says this. You know, don't hear what I'm not saying. And sometimes we think that if we follow Jesus, we'll have a life without pain. That's not what I'm saying at all. Sometimes our calling leads us into pain, but it's not us hurting ourselves on purpose, right? There's a difference between pain for a purpose and just pain. There's a huge difference. So God never wants us to hurt ourselves or a family member or somebody else or, uh, or even somebody that's caught in the very act of adultery. God never wants us to hurt any of those folks, including ourselves, if that was us. We can move on with our life now. As of tonight, you could never have to worry about those things again. You can move on. And we know this because in John 13, Jesus gives us a new commandment. Jesus says this, I give you a new commandment that you what? Love one another, not hurt. Love one another, not tear down, but build up. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another, washing feet, giving our lives for one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's what it is to follow Jesus. And you might say, well, I mean, really, come on. We're talking about sin tonight. You are killing me. Like, you, make it, you make it sound easy. No, of course it's not easy. The devil is always looking to steal, kill, and destroy. Always trying to mess up your life. Always poking your ego. Always messing with your pride. Always. And so the thing is, sin never just happens. It never just leaps upon you. Uh, one of my mentors, Dallas Willard, used to say it like this, as only he could in his 80s. He was like, Mark... Sin is never a surprise. It's more like she'll be coming around the mountain when she comes. You can, you know, it's coming. And, you, and it grows. Desire grows. He said, so, for heaven's sake, for your sake, jump off conveyor belts early. Jump off them early. So, fellas, seriously, if your wife can't take the Victoria's Secret catalog in the mail... Because that's going to lead you to something else in an hour or two and something else a day or two later and something else a week or two later. Don't take the catalog. It's that simple. 
If you can't watch Game of Thrones, probably shouldn't be watching Game of Thrones, um, right? Because it leads this separation to that thing, to this thing, to this thing over here. Then don't watch it. Because it's blowing your life up. Maybe not today, but maybe later. And that's, that's not like, oh, who does he think he is? Jesus is saying, look, friends, come on. There's a life to be had that really is full of life and joy. You can have it. It can be yours. But you've got to get off those conveyor belts early. It's a lot harder later. You don't want your, your spouse you know, reaching for your phone and you trying to protect it because you don't want them to see what's in there. It's really late at that point. I've seen folks recover, but it's a lot harder then than early. So we go back to where we started. John 5, he says this to the man. You're healed. You're made well. Friends, you're all made well. You're made well tonight. You can receive it tonight. But please, don't sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. He said, well, I'm not sure I do sin. You know, I'm, I'm, pre- I'm here tonight, aren't I? It's Friday night for Pete's sake. Well, think about financial sin, for example. Many of us know that God asks us not to get in debt, uh, yet we have very little financial margin in our life. And a single tragedy away from financial collapse. If the primary breadwinner loses income due to a layoff, healthcare crisis, a freak accident for even a few months, it's game over. We know it. Because we've not been faithful in our giving and our saving. Homelessness is less than five months away for many of the families, even in our own church. Because of sexual sin, many marriages have little margin. The relationships are taut, like a bowstring, stretched to the breaking point. And all it takes is a tragic loss or a perceived betrayal to send them to the courthouse steps just that quick because of the little steps that have been taken before. And because of pride or ego, uh, worshiping at the altar of control, many of us have gotten really on that edge emotionally or physically with our margin and, and just like in a sinkhole, when our inner resources are drained, it doesn't take much pressure on the surface of life to bring about a collapse. And I would just remind you, friends, stress, you can't blame this, this stuff on stress. It doesn't create problems. It simply exposes the fault line, lines that already exist. That's, that's what stress does. And we all have fault lines, every person on the planet. So I want you tonight to think about what, where that frail piece is in your life, where that sketchy places, those places where you've gone to try to soothe yourself. I want to encourage you to trust God to help you get out of debt or to forgive a wrong or to rest, really rest every seventh day. I found a prayer this week that I think might help us get this in the right context in our minds as we continue to pray through these things. If you'll pray it with me. Merciful God, when I'm tempted to be envious or jealous, when I insult or hate my neighbor by words or deeds, looks or gestures, reveal my murderous heart and lead me to repentance and reconciliation before I do more harm. Move us beyond looking at my sin or the sin of those judging me. Remind us again now that you are bigger than not only our sin, you are bigger than all sin and all religion. Save us again and empower us to leave our lives of sin. Amen.